Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about burnout. So I think burnout is like a broad term that's used to encompass a lot of more specific stresses that we face, like um, information overload or lack of resources or productivity culture, um, lack of sleep or a persistent lack of power. And I think burnout as a term arises from the fact that we need like a hard diagnosis <laughs> for people to take our sentiment seriously. Uh-huh, you know, like totally. We need like some kind of descriptive factor to give this valence in our culture to make like our bosses take it seriously and our families take it seriously um, and to recognize that <laughs> it's a real issue. It's an issue, and I think that it's important because we think about burnout as influencing motivation, (laughs) right? So it's like when you feel burnt out, you're not as motivated, you don't feel as incentivized to continue to reproduce a relationship, whether that's as a worker, as a partner, as a parent, whatever. And so I think that burnout is really important because it is about recognition of imbalances in relationships. Like what I'm putting in is not what I'm getting out. And that tells me that it's like we think about burnout kind of in financial terms, right? It's a banking model. It's about extraction. It's about, you know, managing symmetrical labor input, you know. But when we talk about it, we're acknowledging that there is an imbalance and an asymmetry to the kind of labor, emotional, financial, physical material that we're producing and what we're getting back. The amount of labor I think that's required of us to like maintain our lives as it's structured in our current economy is tremendous. I mean, I like personally, I've internalized the belief that I should be working all of the time as people think about, your position in the economy, like any kind of failure is a failure of work. Like you didn't work hard enough Mm -hmm. or like, why didn't you just hustle more? Why didn't you just lean in more? And so there is an imbalance um, because the work is just required. It's like bare minimum to, to produce a tremendous amount of labor. And that's not enough to generate success, whatever that means or as it's interpreted. In the culture. So there's like this um, availability bias where people who are successful can attribute it to the work and people, mm-hmm. you know, who worked really hard and didn't succeed. Like they don't push through the noise to say like, I'm just spinning my wheels. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the ca- anti-capitalist love notes. And one of them is like, you are worth more than your productivity. Right. And so that is fundamentally about thinking about people as commodities in terms of worth and about um, at least the anti-capitalist side is about critiquing worth as as a metric of understanding how we relate to one another, which obviously is a critique of the way that productivity culture is really warping the way that we understand time. And 
you know, as a historical thing, I <laughs> oddly enough think about Heidegger's critique of technology and think about mechanization and aggregation and industrialization as the things that have speeded up time to produce this hyper-productive culture under capital. It's hard, you know, that's a relationship to technology that is everywhere. And so I think about it because we social media so much. It's like posting or I'm like the administrator for a bunch of, of, you know, online things for work. It's like, how often are you posting? and How much are you managing this information? And that's 24 seven and it's not on the clock. And right. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to schedule those posts. I'm not going to be online all day, but you have to constantly push back against the mechanization and the technologization of time as a way of sort of trying to reclaim and manage that overproductivity. Yeah, I think about this on like a really long scale too, especially with how we're growing up. And I feel like childhood is truncated because of this problem. Like you have to start in elementary school if you want to get into an elite school. What kid out there is learning to play the piano for fun? Like no kid is learning to play the piano for fun. They're learning it because it's going to make them a more attractive candidate. you know, for an elite school or something, you know, like Mm -hmm. everything becomes work. Uh, And I think it diminishes downtime and time for play. All of your time, even like in childhood, especially if you have driven parents, then now that's more and more common because the resources are so minimal and it's super competitive. Mm -hmm. So um, I just think that the way that we think about time is in service of productivity like you were saying and not in service of things that are meaningful yeah yeah i think that the the burnout is a problem because it is a like a symptom of alienation but once you hit burnout you're so far down the line right so burnout is when you're completely empty and you have nothing left to give and you're despondent and you're angry or ragey And you hate the thing that you're doing or the relationship that you're in or, you know, the job or whatever. And you become frustrated or cynical and you begin to avoid, right? So for me, I think one of the most heinous consequences of burnout is alienation because then it produces all these physical symptoms because it's fundamentally stressful, right? So at burnout as massive, you know, stress then produces a bunch of cortisol in your body and you gain weight and you're depressed and you're emotionally exhausted and you you can't sleep, you know, and you can't do the tasks to keep yourself alive. And, you know, that is a fundamental product of the alienation of labor. So for me, you know, I think burnout is so insidious because not only is capitalism trying to suck all this actual labor out through unreasonable time pressure and shitty communication and lack of clear roles and boundaries and and, and never-ending workload, but also there's no conversation really about how to manage that structurally because We have shitty labor laws. We have no FMLA, (laughs) right? There's no paid parental leave. Like, the culture is set up to just totally suck the life out of you 
intentionally so. So there's all lip service on the right about family values. And I'm like, what's your FMLA policy? How do you take care of your aging parents while you got little kids? What are you talking about? About There are no values here. It's just capitalism run amok, unchecked growth good at the expense of everybody else. You know, pay high deductibles if you want any kind of health care whatsoever. And we're just going to let you die in the fucking streets. And so for me, it's it's the fact that there's a, such an intense relationship between burnout and alienation that is what is creating tremendous social strain. Yeah. I think if I could, like, encapsulate our cultural consciousness in, like, one sentence, it would be, I'm so tired. <laughs> and I, I mean, part of it is that there's, like, no end in sight for the burnout. It's not like if I can just make it until next Thursday – Or if I can just, you know, finish this project, then I'll be golden. The work continues ad nauseum. Also, it's harder to see the benefit. You think there's something at the the end of all of this work, like an end goal. Like the culture is dangling a treat out in front of you. And you just like sit, Um, you'll be given the treat. But like actually you have to sit and beg and roll over and play dead. And also probably fucking dogfight for that treat. Yeah, like, totally. you don't, <laughs> there's always another thing <laughs> that you have to do. Or you have a two-year probation until you get vacation days. Or you have to, mm-hmm. you know, wheedle to get time off or any kind of flexibility. I mean, it is, it is very much positioned labor. It's very much positioned as a zero-sum thing. I mean, I see this all the time with my graduate students. I'm like, you shouldn't, don't cry about that. (laughs) That's not, save those tears for something that really needs it. Your grades are not it, right? Like you are in a graduate program. You just got to get through it, right? And they don't know what's important. Everything feels so high stakes. They're so neurotic. They can't manage their feelings of stress at all, especially the white kids cannot because they're so fragile and they've never, you know, they either never have had to manage multiple things at once or they never learned the skills to do it or um, they have been pushed so hard their whole lives they're just falling apart and cracking. And, you know, because the structure is so uh, unequal in its distribution of labor – then there's all this unfairness that alienates people as well. So, yeah, there's not – what's at the end of the tunnel? More work. You can work really hard and go really fast, and your reward is going to be more work. You can be the most competent person at work, and what do you get as a reward? More work. And the capitalists will tell you, but you're also going to get more money. But the money is not proportionate to the work, <laughs> right? That's the whole point, is that people are trying to work hard to get higher up the ladder because they know higher up the ladder is less work. So – You know, that I think has created a situation now, especially with the the shifting tax burden onto the poor and this massive stripping of wealth to the top under the Trump administration that is creating a kind of intense burnout that folks have not seen in decades, really. Not even during the the Bush crisis in 07, 08 is the burnout. Because I also feel like there's all this contributing social... Um, churn around the political right now, everything about the political, the white supremacy, you know, the Iran strikes, the unstable federal government, the unstable president, the cronyism in the Senate, the corruption 
right, in the Supreme Court, the pussy-grabbing nonsense, rapey men, the racism, the... It's so accelerated because the whiteness is trying to reproduce itself over labor so fast right now, over social media and in politics, that I think sensible people and sensitive people have a very hard time with the overload because there's so much uh, nonsense that they're taking in. It's just a bombardment of sensation, right, that nobody can control and nobody can escape. It's really depressing. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, and buzzkill. Also, the topic is burnout. Yeah. So this is the main. Yeah. I mean, it, it is one thing for me to discuss burnout from my standpoint, but, like, I don't share a lot of experiences in common with other folks. Like, I don't have kids. Yeah. Um, so, I like, while I have empathy for all of the work involved in raising kids, I don't understand that kind of burnout. And, like, I can't speak to the burnout of racism and the cycles of burnout that people who aren't like me go through. You know, I grew up thinking my life would be easy, and not everyone gets to grow up thinking that. And my burnout is related to, like, <laughs> this is actually... Really I was promised hard. a thing. <laughs> yeah. I was told yeah. that if I worked hard, yeah. a thing would happen And that's, a me. like, a privileged oh, yeah. type of burnout, and not everyone even gets <laughs> to think what I... The way I thought, you know, and my, my parents like hit hardship from me, you know, and they have this positive positivity doctrine that I try and dismantle every Thanksgiving <laughs> by saying like all the things that we say we're thankful for are like predicated on privilege and like people who have like the choice of eight different pies to choose from really don't want to hear that <laughs> on that particular day. But, um, I don't know. I, I tell them that I'm stressed out by how high rent is. Mm -hmm. And they're like, we literally don't understand your stress because you're set. And I'm like, I, because I have empathy. And like, even if I was like coming from it from a completely self-involved standpoint, I would say like, if the people who are around me are worse off, then I am also worse off. And, like, I think that I'm stressed out because the rent is so high because I believe that, like, people who are, like, loyal and dedicated and who work hard should be able to afford, like, a Housing. Reasonable... <laughs> yeah. And I don't think most people can with just one job. No. On a single Oh, well, the data is clear about that. You, you don't have to speculate about that. Data is clear about rent in every city. Every city in America. I mean, you know, it's hard because the labor politics of the U.S. suck and there's no left. So, you know, when people talk about burnout, they're like, well, you should just self-care. Like a hot bath will fix your rent problem or your wage problem or your health care problem. And it fucking will not. You, cannot, you, can, you can get all the aromatherapy that you want. And it is not going to ameliorate structural racism, segregation, you know, sh shitty unequal taxation and no single-payer health care. There's just nothing that an individual can do other than these little tiny interventions to try and make their palliatives, basically, right? To make it a little more bearable in managing the survival instinct of living in late capitalism. And so, you know, the self-care stuff, A, it's racist. It's all white. It's all very middle class. It's all ableist, for sure. Just take a walk, right? Just... Get out and, you know, clear your head. I, it's just, it's, it's all just so thoughtless and of a different time, 
You know, it's like boomers write that shit for the millennials. Like, oh, you could just have a cup of hot tea. <laughs> and then you can manage the gross pay inequity in your workplace, uh, you know, and the lack of promotional opportunities for women or people of color, or queers or trans people or whatever. And I just, I don't think that, I mean, privileged people, white people, middle class people do not see their privilege as violence which is why they don't want to hear you critique the pie situation because they can't, they cannot absorb the critique that their pleasure in overconsumption is violent. They can't hear it, which is stressful and creates burnout. <laughs> you know, I feel like this um, relates somewhat to our discussion of enough. Mm-hmm, yes. Um, but I, I feel like getting too much into like, when you decide what's enough, I think we can ignore like what you were talking about, that there's a lot of structural issues that are at play where I don't think we can escape burnout. I mean, you just have to do that to survive, like work incessantly. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a relationship between labor and consumption. And so I think that is going to be climate change is going to produce a different kind of relationship between labor and consumption for a lot of people who don't necessarily have as much flexibility to change their relationship to consumption, which is totally social violence. Lauren Berlant calls it slow death, right? And watching the privileged buy up lots of space so they have a lot of cushion from the masses who can't absorb the stress of climate change, right, on the food economy or on transportation costs or mobility things in general or whatever, and so I think there is part of the burnout that is 100% not avoidable as a workplace scenario, as a generational thing. I mean, you've got all these boomers are the largest generation, youth generation ever in the history of the country. And they're all sick as hell because, right, they trashed the planet. And then the Xers all have kids. So they've got kids and they've got aging parents and an unsustainable environment and a garbage economy, right? It's doing, everybody's stocks are doing well. It's all going to fucking crash before they can retire. And so it's going to create so much more stress in the long run because they can't label it. They can't see it as a structural thing because of the enough things that we've talked about. They they self-blame about it. Like I'm not good enough. I didn't do enough. I should have worked harder I should have been this ideally productive citizen and that wasn't, that's not available for most people. Like there's no world in which you're like my authentic choice is either sex worker or architect. It could go either way. Right. <laughs> that's not, no, that's not a decision point. All of the choices are not available to all of the people all the time. And so it's like, okay, well, structurally then, how do we deal with burnout? Yeah, on a personal level, you can say, do you know what a boundary is and have you made any? And that's important, right? Because that's about personal agency. But on a larger scale, it's like, do you have a union? You know, how are we managing childcare? Why is there no universal pre-K? You know, what? why are wages so low and stagnant? Why are interest rates so low? I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. But all of those things are structural features that are fundamentally undermining, you know, the health and welfare of the citizenry. All of them. I think to get to those structural features, mm -hmm. like, we need more empathy. Yeah. But that's hard to achieve when, like, we're so single-mindedly focused <laughs> on, like, our own survival. 
Like it's hard to get out of that and, you know, provide support for other people and have an empathetic read of the situation. And our culture rejects a lot of empathetic reads of uh, labor. Um, So I don't know. I mean, how do we get to those, that structural work without the emotional content and the support and reframing the way that we think about labor? I mean, I think I have been talking a lot and thinking a lot about scaffolding and about what I have done with my career because I feel like I'm one of the most joyful people that I know and everybody comes to me for support, like everybody, like lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people. And I'm asked to discourse with some frequency about how it is that I can produce so much joy and I am not bogged down in a bunch of, I don't know, self-defeating or depressy kind of things. And for me, I think it's about scaffolding. So I feel like people don't know how to build relationships because they think that working is more important. And so by the time they hit middle age, they don't have friends and they don't have people they can count on or people who show up for them or people who provide emotional care or people who can physically care for them or people who can trade resources or share resources. I mean, they just they have no networks. And I don't mean social networks. I mean, actual people that you call me like, do you have extra cucumbers? I'm in the middle of this recipe. Like, or somebody who will call you and be like, I have so many cucumbers. Can you take some of this shit off my hands? Right? Who know how to barter, who know how to, you know, creatively manage resources. And I have that. I have that. I, I like living in Arkansas because I've spent the last 13 years building that with all different kinds of people from all walks of life here and around the world where it would take nothing on a drop of a dime for me to be like, yo, I actually need a thing. And then somebody showed me like, I'm happy to provide that for you. Were, you know, with zero stress involved. And I just don't think people think about their careers, their lives as scaffolding, as, as an exchange of resources and talents where both people are growing and learning and augmenting their skills for the betterment of the whole, not just for their own personal enrichment. And so I think scaffolding for me is one way that I've thought really hard about what knits communities together to prevent burnout and to create the collective vision to imagine a different kind of sociability and a different kind of politics and a different kind of of um, attitude about empathy, but also about justice. I mean, we have to open up pathways for people to scaffold with each other because, I mean, we haven't set up like good infrastructure to do that. There's not a lot of like gathering spots. We don't walk very much anymore. Mm-hmm. There's not, there are fewer and fewer opportunities for the collision of ideas unless you seek it out. And I mean, with academic work, I think it's easier to scaffold than it is with like manufacturing, for example. Yeah, for sure. And so there are a lot of, there are a lot of uh, situations where people are in, they're faced with like direct competition with the people that they interact with on a day to day basis. And so, and I worked in environments like that, even in when the stakes were extremely low, like mm-hmm. in restaurant work, yes. where like we were just competing with each other to get like a better shift, which might be like an extra $50 on a Friday night. Uh-huh. <laughs> Friday night. So like very low stakes, but it <laughs> kept us from scaffolding and working together. Like someone goes to the bathroom <laughs> and everyone's like, she's weak. She's weak. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think we need to open up. I don't know where that comes from. Like, there does have to be some kind of dynamic where pe- people are less invested in power 
and people who have power are less invested in the consolidation of power and, uh, like, pitting people against each other in competition. I agree. I mean, part of the reason that in the competitive work environment, regardless of how the low stakes are, part of the problem with that is that people then can't be vulnerable at all, right? Which is your bathroom example. And without vulnerability, you can't do empathy. You can't do honesty. You can't do intimacy. You know how I feel about intimacy. (laughs) And, you know, you can't build anything. Okay. It's just individuals just sort of butting up against each other, colliding like atoms, and you can't actually build something stronger than the individual parts, that seems like a very hard way to live. And I think that that's how people live. I think that's how the majority of people live. Is like, I have a man cave and I'm going to hide in it. And I have, you know, a craft room and I'm going to hide in it. Or I'm going to hide in the booze or what, you know. I mean, people are hiding from each other because they do not know how to build with one another. They can't do it. And the only people that they do do it with are the people who are exactly like them, right? So even when you do have successful sharing of resources or in, I think, many cases, hoarding of resources, I would say like fraternities and sororities, those are about generational whiteness and about, you know, hoarding generational wealth and not about sharing, they're about hoarding. I think even when you do have opportunities to share, people don't know how to do it. Like they don't have scripts for the language of it. They've never seen other people do it. They don't have models of it. They are ungenerous as fuck in their assessments of people's abilities. I I just think that it's a skill set and to share power. That is an actual series of skills to do vulnerability, to do openness, to be able to listen well, to have no fear of failure and to be able to come back, to build consensus, to be wrong, you know, to be right with grace. I mean, there are a whole host of of skill sets that we don't encourage people to practice because of individualism and capitalism that would 100% grease the wheels for scaffolding power and resources in ways that are much more equitable and sustainable. And we're just, we're not doing them. And that combined with the fact that people don't have any downtime where they can creatively imagine a different kind of future, fucks over culture, right? Because if you don't have time to sit and think, you're not going to be able to be creative, being creative on demand is very, very hard. Or to scaffold. Yes. Or to like when you reach out to someone and ask for something for them to have the time to give it back. I've seen people shoot themselves in the foot. Like if we had worked together, we would all be better. But like I understand when you don't have a lot of power, you want to exert power over like what little things you can. And so sometimes that can, <laughs> you know, like not cooperating and with someone you work with and competing against them instead uh, makes sense in the short term. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but I, but I mean, you know, this is a very practical question about redistributing power. You know, can it be given benevolently or must it be seized? Marx would say you've got to seize the means of production, you know. And I think most of the people who do social justice work, especially in the areas around racial justice and gender justice that I work in, would say the same thing, like you have to go and seize power. That's not preferable, I think, in a lot of ways, but I think it's essential. Yeah. <laughs> Probably most of them. I see know? a lot of outrage, but not a lot of, like, action. You can't get people to turn up at a, a city council meeting. They won't show up at stuff. They won't show up at fundraisers. They won't even click to send a little bit of cash, the five bucks. They won't show up to meet a candidate. They won't 
and it, they won't do it. You can, it is very hard to get people to show up because the system disincentivizes their political participation by colonizing all their fucking time. And also, I think there's opportunities for engagement online that serve as like a substitute uh, for action. So people get it out of their system. They comment on their like <laughs> fascist ants post online and then they feel like they've done something um, in <laughs> service of their ideas. Um, but it, again, short term versus long-term. They don't know, though. I, I'm convinced that they don't know. I'm not. That's not an excuse for their <laughs> fuckery, but I, they have no idea that their sharing of the memes is perhaps not the most productive uh, use of their rage, right? And I, I, we, have, we have done this double entendre on productivity, I think, before, but I, I just don't think that there's an open conversation about how people should best direct their energies for their own freedom because there's no conversation about freedom ever in the U.S. at this point. We're not talking about liberation. We're not talking about what it means to be free. Our rights are not discussed in terms of freedoms, either from or to. Like, we're not talking about that. And I think that if our political language was framed as freedom, people would have different kinds of motivations because I'll tell you what, people who do justice work and are deeply invested in causes have higher degrees of scaffolding and uh, resource sharing and collectivity and empathy and also higher rates of burnout because they are basically, you know, so few in numbers and they're, they, they're, they feel like they're the little boy with his finger in the dike holding it, the dam from breaking and crashing down on everybody else because, you know, political participation is so disincentivized and, and it's so privatized in 501c3s. And so, you know, there is an element to this that is so structural, you know, that it, that it has to be dismantled for it to change, that it can also, I think, be very daunting yeah. to come to terms with the crushing reality of how overproductivity is destroying things. But, you know, we have this conversation in my academic department, and everybody wants to be punitive, right? And, like, the older people are like, you should work harder than I had to do. I had to work so hard. And it's like, you didn't have to produce three articles a year. Why are you trying to voice that on the young people and then not do the service work or the teaching? And there is this, you know, there is this generational competition, I think, that's emerging right now in the OK Boomer meme stuff that is really about a critique of expectations around labor that's totally fucking unfair. And, you know, I don't want to hear from baby boomers on my productivity. I'm like, how much student loan debt did you fucking have? Zero? Shut your mouth. Were you able to buy a home in the college town in which you work when you came out of grad school? Shut your mouth. I don't want to hear your fucking ideas about productivity. I certainly don't want to hear them if they're higher than what you had to produce. And then it becomes with hoarding resources instead of being like, we should have reasonable things that people can achieve, even when there is unequal buy-in around a generosity of like a department culture, and we should be able to celebrate everybody at the same time. And that is just 100% not how the boomers are rolling, and now they're all fragile about it because the millennials and Xers are like, you're trash, <laughs> you have shitty labor politics, you have shitty environmental politics, you're selfish. Mm -hmm. you and know. you're scapegoating us, us and calling us lazy. Um, right. Yeah. And so, you know, that generational thing has not been a stable relationship across all generations at all points in time. So the reason that it's emerging now 
is because the Xers and the millennials are feeling the burnout because the boomers have sucked all the resources out through extractive capitalism and they're pissed about it. And they do not see work as the curative to the problems that overwork has produced. I feel really bad for um, young people. (laughs) I do. Uh, Especially because I don't think we are as free to decide what we do and to like determine our fates as like we're led to believe as young people. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I, every once in a while we'll talk to, you know, kids who are like in high school or, or, you know, early on in their college career and they're like so optimistic. And I was too at that age. And I'm like, you have no idea how much the debt that you're taking on is going to limit your choices. And even if you don't go into tremendous debt, there are not as many options available to you as you think, because it's, I mean, even without debt, the cost of living period, like when you're out on your own is so high. Like you will, yes, there's not a lot of flexibility. Like, Incomes are not high enough for most people, especially coming right out of college, to like make a lot of choices about where they want to go or what they want to do. I mean, this is why I sort of feel I would not trade the fact that I was a extremely poor kid for anything because I had no optimism and anything I was going to do was going to be gravy. You know, it was there were no expectations on me. There was no bullshit narrative about how amazing things were going to be on the other side. I've already been crushingly poor, so I don't have any fear of failure whatsoever. You know, it set me up with a different kind of mindset that was not middle class. And so I don't have all the ennui about failure and about, about it. I just don't have it. And I think for me, that has enabled me to have a different sense of, of a relationship to work and the academy in my field and politics and friendship and love and all of the rest of the stuff because I cannot be made to care about those things because I know they're li- I knew they were lies when I was young you know I was like the only way that I'm going to get out of here is if I you know run the brutal gauntlet and survive it with a plan that's the only way to do the thing and I didn't have nobody told me I could be an architect bitch please I nobody nobody told me that there was all this shit I could be and I'm glad because I couldn't have become those things, I don't think. Yeah. No, it it sucks. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I did everything that I was supposed to do, you know, uh, as a young person, like with that achievement-oriented mindset, with a very lean-in mindset. Yeah. Like I graduated at the top of my high school class. You know, I was the president of two organizations. I did everything I thought I was supposed to do. I worked very hard. And I don't know. I don't think I found... Or I struggled to find what I would consider to be, like, a traditionally good job. Even though, like, as I was going up, I was like, I'm crushing it. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what I, like, needed was that, first of all, not to have that expectation in the first place. (laughs) Or, like, that desire for whatever success is supposed to be. Um, And secondly, focus. You know, like the conversation we need to stop fetishizing work uh and if we do want to fetishize any kind of mindset around economic participation it should be like focus like what do you you want to spend your time on yes and that's a better use of time like 
instead of filling time with things that you think will add to this like end goal, um, you you know you think more. You spend more time thinking about what you're doing, and like you can focus on the things that you intrinsically enjoy or that you think are important. Yeah, I mean, you know, we had this conversation in the academy all the time, and I'm sort of a. I have admitted many times a reluctant academic. I don't fit in. I have way different values than the academy generally and then my field for sure. I don't care about the same things. And there's a bunch of it I could not be made to care about. It's not possible for me to care about because my values are so different. The way I want to spend my time is different. You know, I want to destroy a bunch of stuff that they are attached to as, you know, icons of success. So there is a, I have a very, I would say, antagonistic relationship towards metrics of success because I just see how they warp people and turn them into these like micromanaging monsters and they're anxious and they are controlling and they become bullies and knowledge hoarders and just fucking assholes. And I'm just like, this shit is not worth that. 42 people read your article. Period. You, there was no effect. If we measured the effect, there was no effect of your idea. I'm not saying it didn't have value to produce it, but let's call it what you, it had value for you personally, perhaps, or were you just doing it for daddy? I just can't be made to do shit for daddy. I don't want to do it for daddy. I am here to eat daddy and kill him <laughs> and you know i'm here to expose him as having no clothes and i think that's why i've been able to for the most part avoid burnout you know is that for me i think that success is mostly a lie i think that i'm trying to produce the most ethical and interesting self possible in a community of practice that scaffolds the needs and desires of my community and the rest of it is just like shit I have to do to put food on the table. I can't be made to give a fuck about it. I just don't. I just don't. Are we building together or not? And if we're not, get the fuck out of the way because I have a bunch of other people I'm trying to build with. For them, it's about survival. It's not about, you know, this dilettante playing in the ideas thing that higher ed is about right now. It's not about hyper-specialization. It's about, you know, managing this period of intense wealth transfer so that all these people don't get so fucked. And I just can't, I just can't get with folks who don't understand that reproducing the trauma of overproductivity as burnout is fucking toxic. It's bad behavior. It is anti-freedom practice. It's anti-liberatory. It's fundamentally oppressive. It's fucking racist. Rigor is racist. Merit is racist. The notions of success in all of the industries are fucking racist. They're transphobic and ableist and classist and sexist. So I can't defend them. They're indefensible. And I don't want to reproduce them. So it's like, how can you find pockets of spaces to smash that stuff or innovate it or transform it or neuter it so that it's not doing all of this cultural damage and producing all of this structural trauma? Because that's what burnout is. It is evidence of labor, bad labor practices as trauma. One coping mechanism for burnout is nihilism. Concur. And I see a lot of people doing that. And I, <laughs> I see a lot of people dabbling in the nihilism. <laughs> um, and I do not blame anyone for doing that. 
Um, but I also want to emphasize. <laughs> I also want to emphasize that like collaborative energy is the way to go. Like I do want to emphasize that because nihilism is like I'm out. You know, uh huh. You know, I'm not participating in this. But I mean, that leaves a lot of other people on the hook, and some people have. Like, whether you're able to tap out or not depends a lot on privilege, too. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know. I think the best way to, like, combat burnout collectively is with collaboration. And and also just putting money in people's hands. Yes. (laughs) Pay them out. Yeah. Yeah. So. I agree with that. And, I mean, obviously, in the first season, we talked a lot about play as not just a personal strategy, but as a social strategy, as a collective strategy for managing, you know, this kind of transitional epoch, right? That's like late capital. And the only way to do that really is to try and get to a place where you can play even through the tears and the pain and the, you know, overwork and the, you know, survival stuff because... We're not climbing out of this anytime soon. 